I don't know about you, but I just love a great conversion story. You know, when you go to these, uh, especially evangelistic meetings, and people get up and they tell these stories, it's like, wow, isn't that amazing? The problem is I just never had a story like that. My conversion seems so boring. It's like, I, I like more like the gradual sunrise than like a flash of lightning, you know? I love the flash of lightning stories, you know? Or, or like John Wesley, May 24, 1738, my heart was strangely warmed. That, that's, that's the kind of conversion I want, you know? The kind of dramatic one you can tell stories about it. I also felt that way about callings. Whenever you talk to students, I often ask them about their calling in the ministry. And it's amazing the stories that I've heard about calling from God. And in my um, previous life, before I'll just call him Brand X, uh, before I came to Asbury, I, uh, I oversaw a missions program. And so what, the, the, what they did in those, in those days was if you uh, applied to the school and you ticked on the admission form, you know, you're going to major in biblical studies or whatever. If they ticked missions, they were going to be a missionary or interested in missions program, then I would spend time and interview them. So I got to talk to dozens and dozens, hundreds of students over the years in that way. And so I asked students, uh, tell me, um, what is your, what's your call? What, what's, your, what's, what's your story? How God, how's God leading you? And I would very regularly hear something like this. You know, I, I, the Lord has just been touching my heart, and I just feel like I, I, I need to give myself to full-time to cross-cultural service, but I have no idea where I'm to go, what I'm to do. I have no idea. I'm just kind of walking through a little fog here, but I'm here, you know, at the school trying to get that worked out. I heard that story a lot. One day, after hearing probably, I'd already heard maybe three versions of that story, a young man came to my office, and I said to him, like I said the other three, tell me, you know, your story, and Tell me your, your call. And he said to me, and this, I'll never forget, I mean, this is exactly what he said to me. He said, I've been called to uh, promote education among the Mapuche Indians in Chile. I said, wow, that is amazing. He said, I've been called to work in education among the Mapuche Indians in Chile. I said, have you ever been to Chile? He said, I've never been to Chile. I said, have you ever, just curious, have you ever met a Mapuche Indian? He says, no, I never met one, but I'm called to promote education among the Puji Indians in Chile. And he finished his graduate program. He went on to get his, his doctorate. And for the last 20 years, 25 years actually right now, he is doing promoting education among the Puji Indians in Chile. <laughs> isn't that great? Yeah. I mean, you know, isn't it wonderful when God does what you expect him to do, but it's pretty rare, isn't it? I mean, I, I just I had another man who had a similar story. It's exciting in some ways because he had the, the call of God, but he also had bumps along the way that made it, you know, sometimes God's unfolding plan in our lives is not as simple as we would like it to be, right? Sometimes we end up with different paths, and sometimes it's easy to impose on Scripture even our own stereotypes of how things should be than what the text actually says. But this young man... I had never actually never seen him much. This is actually not, this is two institutions ago. I was at Tacoma Falls College. This had been early 90s, a long time ago. And I was uh, teaching the missions program there. And uh, this student comes into my office, walks, just kind of wanders through my door, and he had, had tears in his eyes. So I said to him, uh, what's, what's your problem? He told me his name, and it was Glenn. And he said, um, he had this little piece of paper, and he said, I've just been dismissed from the missions program. 
And I said, well, why is that? He said, well, my, my GPA was too low, and I just, I'm not making it here. And yet God has called me to be a, a minister in China. I know God's called me to be in China, but I can't even get out of, I can't go unless I have some degree, and I'm just, I'm just, I'm just stuck. So I said to him, well, what classes have you had? And so he told me the classes he had. And I said, you know, those may not be really the best representation of your abilities. I said, um, have you ever considered teaching English as a second language? I said, you can speak English, fine. You already know English. And he said, um, I never thought about it. I said, well, I oversee the ESL program at that college at that time, among other things, but that was part of my job. And I said, I, even though you're out, flashed out of the missions program, you can be in the ESL program, and you can go to China. So right now, China's hiring 80,000 Americans to teach English all across uh, China, and you could be one of those 80,000. I think you have a good shot at it. You know, they need 80,000. There's 80,000 job openings. I think you can get one. So he said, well, I'll do that. So he joined our ESL program, and what was so amazing, he was great at it. He was really good at it. In fact, he, he absolutely just nailed the classes. All the other students of the program would go to him for advice and input because he was really good at that particular kind of thing. He wasn't very good at math and, you know, advanced English and all that, but he was good at ESL. Anyway, so I found through the process of that that everybody has to work out their journey and understand God's calling in your life and how it may unfold. And you really can't compare yourself to the person next to you. God has his own journey for you. And in the text that's before us uh, is a great example of this particular situation because you would think, here we are reading a passage on this side of the resurrection, on this side of the empty tomb. And yet, we find the disciples, the two kind of dominating words there in verse 19 are the key words, locked and fear. So here they are in the, in the full light of God's victory in Jesus Christ, yet they're behind locked and barred doors for fear of the Jews. It says a lot about it. I mean, if, this was a, if the Bible was merely like a book of uh, like PR, you know, someone said, we're going to craft this thing to you know, get the whole church launched well, you wouldn't include this. You would show the disciples like, you know, plotting their resurrection victory that you would have them like rolling out their blueprint to bring the entire Roman world to the gospel. We don't have any of that. People behind locked and barred doors. Have you ever had a times where you just felt like you didn't want to admit it, but even though you're in seminary, you're called by God, your church is supporting you perhaps, or you're under scholarship, but you feel like even so, you're maybe a little bit behind locked and barred doors, or you have fears about things question your own calling, what the direction is. These are normal things. And the disciples are there, and uh, there, there's a big difference between the announcement of what happens and the appropriation of what happens. Okay, that, the, the announcement has already happened. He is not here, he is risen. You know, a dying condemned thief is being told, this day you'll be with me in paradise. You know, I hold the keys of death and hell. These are announcements of the good news, but we have to appropriate that into our lives. And that can be messy, it can be difficult, it can be challenging. That's part of the, what God does in his, his own work. And part of the key, I think, in this process we see in this text is that they suddenly realize, gradually realize, I should say, that their story 
must be linked to his story. You know, he is the called one. He is the elect one. He is the one that has been anointed. Our calling, our purpose, our ministry gets brought up into that. I had a student one time, again, back to, this is back to Gordon-Conwell. He was so committed to the mission field, he was called, but he could not decide where to go. He just did not know where to, where to go. He had no idea. He had never been overseas a lot, and people would come back from, you know, Costa Rica, or come back from Nigeria, or come back from India, and say, oh, you know, my heart was strangely warmed. I felt I did love Indians, you know, all that. They, they wanted to have that. He didn't have that. And so he went to a very wise man in our, in our community. He said, what should I do? And this is what the guy said to him. The guy said to him, and by the way, I'm not endorsing this. This is just what, I'm just reporting. This is a descriptive, not a prescriptive story. He told the guy, he said, listen, this is what you need to do. He said, you need to go down to the Walmart and get a dartboard. And bring back the dartboard and put around the edge of the dartboard all of the regions of the world on the dartboard. And then you put it on the, on the back wall and you take a dart and you fling it over your shoulder and wherever it hits, you should go there. <laughs> to which the stunned student said uh, to him, that seems to be an odd way of, of discerning God's will. And this is like maybe called the dartboard method. But he said, no, it's not. Because the point is, wherever the dart hits, God needs you there. And much as anywhere here. The whole point is there are amazing opportunities everywhere in the world. Roll up your sleeves and get with the program. God's at work everywhere, and God invites you into his work. That was his point. It was a dramatic point. The guy, to my knowledge, never did actually uh, pour out, put out the, 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 get the dartboard from Walmart, but his point was made. And he ended up, by the way, ministering and working in Turkey, and he, and he loves being in Turkey you know, overall, <laughs> but he's doing God's work there in Turkey. So the Lord uh, appears and essentially invites them. This is now, this is the night of Easter, verse 19. He invites them into, uh, he comes in behind their lock, the locked doors. He comes right into their fears. Isn't this great? He comes to where they are and he says to them, Shalom Alekim, peace be unto you. All right. This is the first of three times in this text where he pronounces peace upon them. He then shows them, verse 20, he shows them his hands and his sides. This is the mercy of God, isn't it? He comes to us, he understands, he doesn't, he doesn't rebuke them, he doesn't chastise them, he, he's gentle with them. Look at my hands, it's me, my side. He's the second time, verse 20, peace be unto you. And then he gives them the great commission. This, I looked at this last year with you, but he gives them the great commission as the Father has sent me. I am sending you. Now that particular passage is not generally regarded as a Great Commission text, but as we explored last year, it is John's Great Commission. You know, we're used to go into all the world and preach the gospel, make disciples of all nations, all those kind of texts. But this is John's way of communicating that night what was clearly a Great Commission text because Jesus is, in John's gospel, the number one way he's referred to, refers to himself as the sent one. 40 times in John's gospel, concludes in this text, this is the last time, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Again, showing us that our ministry is in continuity with his ministry. See, that, if you learn nothing else about the calling of God, 
learn this, that the calling of God ultimately is God's calling in Jesus Christ. And we are called to participate in that and with him. I mean, think about callings in the New Testament. Like Paul is going, he wants to take a, you know, a left turn. Uh, no, he wants to take a right turn. God has a left turn in mind. He wants to, God, he wants to go into Asia. God called him into Europe. So he's torn about this. What is God calling him to do? He felt resistance in going to, uh, you know, into, into Asia. So he sleeps that night, and he gets a vision of a mastering man saying, come over and help us. He wakes up and says, okay, it's very clear. God's called me to go to, to Europe. He goes over to, you know, over across the seventh race, enters in. We have Philippi, and he's, he has the first European convert, the, the Lydia, and the whole European field opens up. Now that, now that's my kind of calling. I mean, I, when I was deciding whether to come to Asbury, I was in, living in Boston at the time, and I was just waiting to sleep one night. And ha- I don't even need the Macedonian man. I just need the Cluckers man, you know, a man from Cluckers in my dream. Come to Wilmore. Come over and help us. <laughs> it didn't come. I never had the Macedonian man dream. I didn't have, like, you know, I didn't even have, I didn't even have Ellsworth Callus in my dreams. I didn't have, I just had, I had nothing but, God, what do you want me to do? And in my life, and I'm not saying, again, it's not being prescriptive, because I, everybody has their own journey, but in my experience, I've had many times where I've had crossroads in our life, and here's Julie, bless her heart, she can think of all the crossroads that we've faced in our lives. Overseas, going overseas, not going overseas, taking this appointment, moving here, moving there. We've moved 20 places and times. It's unbelievable. Our kids, we <laughs> look at our kids, like Facebook pages, they all like their hometowns, like all different places. That's a bad sign, you know. Even they don't know where they grew up, you know. We, we, we moved a lot. We were changing a lot. We were hearing God's call a lot, and we thought we did. And um, in our experience, generally speaking, God confirmed his call after I took the first step. I have found that so true in my life. Now, I, I'm not saying it's true for you, but I just found for me, God says to me, keep moving, and I will I will let you know. And there's times we've taken a few steps and God said, uh-uh. But sometimes, and many thankfully coming to Asbury, we sense God said, yeah, this is the right thing. But I'm like unpacking my boxes in, in Wilmore. I loved to have known a few weeks ago, but this is how God works. God works in different ways. And this is how we see in this experience here. He comes in them. He, he gives them the Great Commission. He then breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, isn't that great? I want Jesus to breathe on me. I want to receive the Holy Spirit. This is one of the great things that's unrecognized of the Great Commission because two of the commissions say go, two basically say stay. I mean, two of them are saying go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature, all of that, but others like, no, stay in the city until you can clothe the power on high. Don't go out. Don't be sent out until you receive the Holy Spirit. The importance of being caught up in the ministry of the triune God is reinforced throughout this text. And by the way, uh, we, we had this quotation, this beautiful prayer from the 4th century. While we're on the 4th century, you should get to know Ephraim the Syrian. Because another one of the great gifts of the church, uh, loved by the Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox as well. This is probably the patron saint of the Eastern uh, Syrian, certainly the Syrian Orthodox Church. Great hymnologist, by the way, wrote all these hymns. He was called the, uh, the, uh, the, the dove of, of hymnology of that fourth century. But he wrote hymns and also prose that showed 
don't view the cross of Christ and the resurrection and the ascension and Pentecost as four different events. They're all one great redemptive event with different parts. You see, God's doing the whole thing. He's, he's breathing the Spirit. He's calling them. He's, re, he's resurrected. All of this is brought together into one great redemptive event. And God is doing that in our lives in ways that we often don't understand. And then he says in verse 23, If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not, they are not forgiven and retained. Now this passage often calls, gives Protestants the, the bejeepers. Is that a word? It gives them the kind of the willy-nilly. It's like, oh my goodness, this is saying if you forgive someone their sins, they're forgiven. If you don't, they're not. This is not about, this is actually in, in the whole context of this, this is about God's work, what God is doing. This is particularly his mission, ex opere operato. You know, it happens outside of our functioning of it. We don't have the authority to announce forgiveness. He announces forgiveness. I'm sorry, we don't have the authority to, to give forgiveness. We announce forgiveness. God is the one that forgives people. But we have the authority, indeed the responsibility, to announce it into the world. Part of the calling of God is to go out and represent him in the world. And if someone repents of their sin, we can say to them with authority, your sins are forgiven you because you met the terms of the gospel. Not because anything we granted or withheld, but because we are representative of the gospel in that respect. And one of the great things about public ministry that many of you are called to is you're called to represent the gospel in the world, which also means having the courage to say, if you don't repent and you don't believe in Jesus Christ, then your sins are not forgiven you because this is God's uh, provision he's made through the gospel. Well, all these amazing things happen. They've had these five things happen. The resurrection appearances. He gives them the threefold shalom. He shows them his hands and his side. He gives them the great commission, and he breathes on them to receive the Holy Spirit. That's a good night. That's a good night in the Lord. You can go to sleep. That was a really good night. Well, guess what? Thomas is not there. Now, that's me. I'm the one that's not there. When I, when I was growing up, at one point, I felt kind of vaguely my sleep, middle of the night, my father shaking me. Get up, get up, get up. Something, 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 something. Just kind of vague memory, okay? A deep sleeper. And so I didn't realize what was going on. I was slow getting up. I must have gone back to sleep a little bit. I finally get up. Everyone's gone. I go downstairs to the basement. And there I had missed it. Our uh, dog had given birth to puppies. And my dad had woken us all up to witness the birth of puppies. The entire family witnessed the birth of puppies, except for me. I was asleep. So, okay, I was very young. I can get over it. But ever since then, they were my brother's mommy. By the way, you were the one that was asleep when the puppies were born, you know. You were not there when the big event happened. Okay, Thomas, here he is. He's one of the disciples. He's one of the 12. He goes down to the convenience store to get a, a loaf of bread and a gallon of milk because they're behind locked doors, get some food for them. He comes back, he, and they say, you don't believe what happened. We saw the Lord. So Thomas is like, oh, come on now. Unless I see the nail, the nail, the nail in his hands, I put my hand in his side, I will not believe it. And from that instant on, the church has seen fit to dub Thomas Doubting Thomas. This is now his heritage. 
that that wreath has now been put upon his head, doubting Thomas, until the eschaton. But is it true? Look what happens. Uh, you know, here's Peter and John on that night. They're, I mean, Thomas is just a week behind everybody else's doubts, right? So Peter and John had been, had seen the empty tomb. They didn't believe. The women had told them, the Bible says in Luke's gospel, Luke 24, 11, they saw it, heard it as nonsense. They didn't believe the women. And yet, and when they saw the Lord's side, they believed. They were just a week, one week uh, ahead of Thomas's doubts. Moses, the great deliverer of Israel, he, of course, gets called by God to deliver Israel. Pretty good, solid calling. A burning bush is another great example of a calling of God. I'm really looking for the burning bush. But even there, think about it. Even with something as dramatic as that, it takes time for Moses to figure it all out. So Moses gets called. He's the deliverer of Israel. So what does he do? He goes out and uh, he, you know, he murders the Egyptian. He murders the Egyptian. It takes a long time to go back out and re-encounter God in the, in the wilderness and finally to go out and be the deliverer of Israel. No one calls him murdering Moses. We call him the great deliverer of, of, of Egypt, of, of Israel. Apostle Paul had a pretty rough start, didn't he? Apostle Paul finds himself in the horrible situation in Acts 8.1 of observing the stoning of Stephen and giving his hearty approval to it. Later he says in Acts 22.20 that Paul actually holds the cloaks while they stone Stephen to death. Now no one calls Paul, you know, um, well, no, no, you can't be an apostle. You can't be the great Gentile uh, missionary to the ends of the earth. You are henceforth called, hold the cloak, Saul. You're the one that hold the cloaks. You have lost your ministry opportunity. It's over with. It's over. It's gone. This is not what we do. Peter, of course, denied Christ three times. Uh, we remember that. We recount that in all the Gospels. But we don't, we don't say to Peter that he can't be the great apostle of the church. Oh, no, 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 you're, you're, you're denying Peter. We don't do that to Peter. We don't do that to Paul. We don't do that to Moses. James and John, you know, they're like, oh, yeah, we're going to sit in your left and right hand when you go in your kingdom. I mean, wouldn't it be really appropriate to say, no, from now on, they're James and John the arrogant. No more opportunities for them. Yet we do this with Thomas. And Thomas, after the one week has passed, we're told in verse 26, 27, here they are, they'll gather together again, behind locked doors, by the way, still. They're appropriating what's happened. They're trying to figure out what's going on. Thomas is there. Jesus comes, again, act of grace, he stands before them the third time, peace be unto you. Then Jesus turns directly to Thomas and says to him, just what he did the other disciples a week earlier, put your finger here, put your hand on my side, stop doubting and believe. Now Thomas, at that point, you know, this is the person that just one week earlier we had chosen to christen as Doubting Thomas. One week earlier, we had chastised for his doubts. One week earlier, we had criticized for his unbelief. He now falls to his knees and makes the most important declaration of the deity of Christ in all the Gospels, my Lord and my God, from the lips of 
believing Thomas, not doubting Thomas, believing Thomas. Now, I've here I want to show you uh, an icon. I have them in my office. I think it's on the overhead as well. This is an uh, icon done by Winfield Bevins, our director of church planting. Uh, you didn't know that Winfield Bevins can both plant churches and paint icons, a multifaceted man. Uh, but this is an icon of St. Thomas. I want to say a couple words about this icon because it's a favorite of mine. The first point, of course, is what's in the scroll, where you have uh, in the scroll the very key words that remembers Thomas, the church remembers him by. He's not remembered for his doubts. He's remembered in this icon by him saying, my Lord and my God. Thomas was transformed the same way that everybody in this room is transformed. He had a personal encounter with the risen Lord. Amen? You, you know, going to church won't change your life. Singing hymns won't change your life. Even going to the scene, the empty tomb doesn't change your life. Confessing creeds won't change your life. Going to committee meetings won't change your life. Believe me. <laughs> what will change your life and the life of anyone in your congregation is having an encounter with the risen Lord. And so often we make everything else the encounter rather than the central fact we must help people to encounter the risen Christ. That's what Paul says in Philippians. He says that I consider everything else a loss, rubbish, compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord, for whom's sake I have lost everything. I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection. This is Paul's call for all of us today. Now, there's many, many ways where we find ourselves and Satan wants to push us back behind those locked doors, even after the resurrection. Push us into the place of fear and shame rather than into the glorious sunlight of God's work in the world, which beckons us to it. I love what Corrie Boom once said about that text in Micah 7.19. It ends, it's the next to last verse in Micah's prophecy where the Lord says, the prophet says, he, God, treads all of our sins under his feet and he hurls our iniquities into the depths of the sea. And then Corey Tim Boom adds this little point. She says, and once God hurls your sins into the depths of the sea, he puts a little sign there, a little buoy on that part of the ocean that says, no fishing allowed. You're not allowed to fish him back up again. Because Satan wants to fish them back up. He wants to revisit them on your life. He wants to remind you all the 12 reasons why you can't, be, can't serve him. But if that were the case, then none of the apostles would be released from ministry. All of them would be, and not just the apostles, the patriarchs as well. They all would have reasons why they'd be disqualified. But it's about his great work. Which brings the second part of this icon. You notice on the top it says St. Thomas of India. Now there are many, many stories about where the apostles went after the resurrection of Christ, after the close of the New Testament. Many of them are spurious because most churches wanted to believe they had an apostolic origin. But of all of the apostolic stories, the one that has the most solid historical evidence is the story of St. Thomas. And many of the great historians of Indian Christianity, like Stephen Neal and more currently Robert Frickenberg, they believe that of all of these stories, this one is very solid. Now, in the first century B.C., before the time of Christ, they discovered a very important technological fact, and that is that 
the monsoon rains were very reliable. The monsoon rains, I think to this day, is considered the most reliable, regular weather pattern in the history of you know, the, the whole kind of weather planet uh, situation. So what you have is you have a situation where the rains go from the southwest to the northeast, and then they switch, and they go from the northeast to the southwest, and it happens regularly every year. Now, that's a huge realization. Once you realize that major wet winds that come from China all the way to the tip of India change directions, then that means that you can actually plan a trip, essentially, where a ship can be blown. In this case, it would blow you right to the southwest corner of India, the, the was now said of Kerala. And when the monsoon rain shifted, it would blow you right back to the mouth Mediterranean. And so, amazingly, despite all the perils of travel in the ancient world, traveling uh, by monsoon winds to the coast of India was not that difficult. In fact, in the, time, the first century, over 50 ships are recorded traveling between the, the empire and, and the coast of India in, this, in, the, uh, in the, the, the spice trade. So St. Thomas was on one of those ships. In the year 52 AD, it's believed that Thomas brought the gospel to India. And there is an ancient church still in India today called the, the Marthoma Church, which is the St. Thomas Church, which goes back to the original six people that St. Thomas brought to the Lord. He was martyred in India, and his martyrdom is there, and you can go visit his uh, martyrdom site as well in South India. So here is a person who, again, we want to dub Doubting Thomas, who ends up taking the gospel farther than anybody else in the early apostolic circle. So, okay, he started one week late, but look how far he went. Praise the Lord. Some of you this morning may feel like you're starting one week late, as it were. I don't mean that literally, but, uh, you know, symbolically. You may uh, had you know, job situations that delayed you from getting into ministry. You may have resisted. I've had people tell me that God called me 20 years ago. I fought with him for 20 years. Or some tragedy in your life that happened that disrupted you in various ways, second career, whatever happened. And you're just now where you believe God's called you to be. Thomas can be your patron saint. Here he is. Winfield Bevins could paint you one too. It's really, really great to know that God has given us a, a mentor here. Someone who, yeah, he wasn't there that night. No, he didn't believe it either. But he didn't let that stop him or shackle him for the great purpose God had for him. And he ended up taking the gospel farther than anybody else. Now that, to me, is a great story. And a great story of the gospel. That God can turn your locked doors into your mission to India or wherever else God may have called you. So thank you, Thomas. Thank you that only in earth are you known as Doubting Thomas. Thank you in the annals of heaven you're known as Believing Thomas. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. We thank you for your beloved St. Thomas who itself has reminded us of your great calling in our lives. Thank you for your persistence in our lives. Thank you that your calling, your anointing is ours. We join our story with your story.
So Lord, bless every student here this day, every person, every staff person, every guest, every visitor who's here. You reconfirm your calling in their lives this day. In Jesus' name, amen.